now presenting John Gabriel, the undisputed king of stuff. What is up, podcast? This is your favorite podcast host, John Gabriel, on your favorite podcast. Long enough pause there. The king of stuff. As I mentioned last week, this is a very important episode. This is episode number 400, and I decided for this one to do an Ask Me Anything. Um, any questions I ask people on Ricochet to tell me in the show notes, ask for people on Twitter, Facebook, Insta, that's what the kids call it. Um, not on Snapchat, not on TikTok. I do not have those valuable services. I put it up on Friendster, MySpace. And so here are the questions I got. And I try not to think of them a lot when I was compiling them. Um, and also, I was thinking of calling this show Get to Know Me after uh, the brilliant John Lovitz. I'll, I'll play a clip here. To know me. And now, our final testimonial from a man who speaks the truth. Before I got to know John, I was nothing, nowhere, a nobody. I was a two-bit comic with an arrow stuck through my head. And then I got to know him. And now I've just starred in a movie called Parenthood, directed by Opie. And today they call me Steve Martin. Thank you. Thank you. It's true, I tell you, it's true. Bernie Kreisler. He's a stud. I might do a movie directed by Potsy. I so let's get right to it. These are not in any specific order. Let's just go. The Pie Man asks, who are the most annoying people on Twitter and why are they the bicycle people? I don't know who the bicycle people are. Um, I'm sure there are so many annoying little subgroups on Twitter that never cross my path. Um, I would say the most annoying people would be people who have decided they they log on Twitter wanting to be offended. And so a good example, I'll tell a joke and people interpret it as an attack instead of just a sarcastic comment uh, because they're dying to be offended. When I look at things, I assume most people are joking or just giving straightforward information. Um, people who... Also, the people who are looking to be offended will reinterpret your words to make it as most offensive to them personally as they can, even though you never said what they're offended at. So, yeah, those people, guys, it's a poor use of Twitter. If you get on Twitter to be angry, delete the app. Daniel asks, this is displaced Daniel on Twitter. What are the best tacos in Mesa? This is an easy one. It's a little place in downtown Mesa called Tacos Chiwas. C-H-I-W-A-S, um, Best Tacos. They actually started from a little hole in the wall in uh, not too far from downtown Phoenix, and they uh, opened a couple of years ago, probably, one in downtown Mesa. Those are the best tacos. Michael Hendrickson, he asks, have you ever been caught outside during a haboob? Haboob, I must say, is one of my favorite words in the world, and it is the fancy term for a dust storm taken out of Saudi Arabia or something Arabic. And uh, we just called them dust storms when I was a kid. Then uh, news people, the weather folks, started calling them hubboobs, and that's much more fun. Um, yes, I've been caught outside during many of these things, especially when I was younger. And, uh, you know, you didn't care if you got filthy dirty all the time. One memorable time is in high school and like the six months out of high school before I went in the Navy. I was riding a little motorcycle. I had a little uh, dinky Honda that I'd ride around. And uh, not being too brilliant, I would often ride it around wearing shorts and a t-shirt or a polo shirt. 
And uh, one of those days I was driving probably about a 15 mile journey and halfway through it, a haboob hit and I had to lean against the wind. It felt like I was leaning at about, I don't know, 20, 30 degree angle. Couldn't have been that much or I would have fallen off the road. I was basically trying to outrun the storm because I was screwed either way. I was going through a patch without any kind of businesses or anything, just riding through the desert. And so there was nowhere I could stop and hide or whatever. Um, but it was like a million needles and pinpricks uh, hitting me nonstop. Thankfully, I had a full face helmet, uh, mostly just because I thought it looked cool. But uh, so it wasn't too bad. But dust got in there. Um, but there have been other times I wanted to take a photo of a haboob moving into town. So I climbed up on a roof and I was unable. I, I stayed a bit too long. I was unable to get down. So, uh, yeah, I was getting pummeled as I was trying to climb down off the roof. Yeah. And another time, probably most recently, as I wanted to show my kids what it looked like. So I drove up to a two story parking lot so we could watch the storm move in. And once again, hung out a bit too long. We were in the vehicle there, but I don't know. We were driving like five miles an hour to get home, like the mile and a half to get back home from where we were because um, it, it was there was almost like no visibility. So, uh, yeah, I've been caught many times in those. What else we got here? Golfing accountant. He asks, what will be the naughty senator's strategy against the Gallego campaign? This is Ruben Gallego. He's running against Kirsten Cinema. He's already announced that he's running, I believe. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know if she would even be in the Democratic primary. She's independent now, so I assume not. But he's been bashing her nonstop. Anyway, I'll continue with his question. Is this a 4D chess move by Gallego to extract progressive promises from her? Or is he on a suicide mission slash delusional power play? As we know, Kirsten Cinema is uh, always running to the center. And she has been since she was elected. But she's been doing that her whole career. Everybody who's followed Arizona politics knew that's what she wanted to do. Maybe in her heart of hearts, she's more lefty. But um she comes from a background, like, I think she came, her family is Mormon, she grew up around conservatives, and so she doesn't have this instinctive hatred for people who believe differently from her, and she's always looking at, okay, what can we actually get done here, let's pass something. Gallego is definitely a bomb thrower, he's been blasting her nonstop, he's a jerk. Um, think of someone like AOC or Ilhan Omar, he's one of those kind of people. So, yeah, he could win. Uh, he could win the Democratic primary, but he's just an unappealing person. Uh, you can do that. He can run, you know, unopposed and win um, a seat in the House of Representatives in a very, very blue district. I don't see him winning a statewide election, but um, it's really um, uncharted territory. What's going on? He's not going to get Sinema to back down. Definitely. But when you're talking a three way race with an independent incumbent, a far lefty running um, in the Democratic Party and who knows running in the GOP. It's uh, yeah, it's going to be really weird. And whoever wins will have they will win with a plurality of votes and not an outright majority. So it could be weird. I don't know. And Gallego is the kind of person, too, who could be running strong against her and then say something idiotic because he's constantly tweeting and saying idiotic things. And he's just blown out of the water. He just immolates his campaign. I wouldn't be surprised if he did that because he is a bomb thrower. That's the kind of person he is. Paulette, also known as Diving Nomad on Twitter. Zeno or Epictetus? Who would win in a steel cage match? This is actually easy uh, for not a good reason. Zeno is uh, widely regarded as the founder of Stoicism. 
but he lived in ancient Greece and his writings weren't really preserved. Some other authors quote him, but he's kind of this shadowy figure in Greek prehistory. Epictetus is one of the most famous Stoics, but he would lose badly in a steel cage match because he was lame. Um, he uh, started off as a slave from Greece. Um, his master brought him to Rome and his master beat the crap out of him, and he ended up losing use of one of his legs, or at least he was lame, so I don't know if he could kind of use it or what, but he was not um, a top physical specimen. Um, the good news about that is now he had no, the master had no use for him as a slave, so he set him free, and then he became a stoic teacher, and uh, other people wrote down his words. What he's mostly famous for, one of his students wrote, and it's called the Enchiridion, which is just fancy Greek word for a handbook. And it was just noted a lot of his basic teachings and saying. So I think Zeno would win, even though I know nothing about him, because Epictetus, he was kind of a broken down dude and an old man. Very important question here from original JWF, a.k.a. Jamie Waring Fool. Can you core an apple? Yes, I can. I can do it with a knife, but I prefer to use one of those apple core slicer things where you just hold, put the apple on a table push down the slicer thing, and then you have eight lovely slices of apple with a core removed. Kate Hyde, former, uh, she has been a guest on this fine show. She has three questions. Number one, was the espresso in your profile picture on Twitter, um, was the espresso in the cup as memorable as the picture has become? Uh, yes, it was. It was excellent. That photo was taken in Chicago, um, sitting on the uh, patio of Intelligentsia Coffee, the most pretentious name in coffeedom, but at least at the time, the finest coffee you'd get in the world, I'll say. I, I haven't been anywhere else in the world and had coffee, but uh, yeah, it was excellent, and it was a proper macchiato. Not the macchiato you get at Starbucks that's uh, 34 ounces and filled with sugar and cream. Um, it was just a perfect macchiato, so, or macchiato. So that's what I got. Very memorable. Um, which of Coolidge's, Calvin Coolidge's, non-conventional pets would you most like to have yourself? Now, I did not know, or at least I didn't remember, all the unconventional pets that uh, Calvin Coolidge had, so I looked this one up before hitting record. He had a whole bunch of dogs, five collies, two chows, terrier, Airedale, Sheltie, Bulldog, German Shepherd, and a bird dog, two cats, three canaries, a thrush, a goose, and a mockingbird, two raccoons, that's a nasty pet, a donkey, bobcat, and some of these were gifts, by the way, from foreign dignitaries, almost as a joke, but he kept them, two lion cubs, a wallaby, a pygmy hippo, and a black bear. Of the conventional pets, I would say a Sheltie. I love Shelties. Um, they are a herding dog. The problem is they shed like a nightmare, and I live in a very warm climate. And also, they just need their best as a farm dog. So they can just run, 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 run all the time. And I'm a little too sedentary to give them enough exercise, I would think. Um, of the unconventional, I will say a wallaby. Kelly Marr, who some of you might know, she lives in Colorado. She has a pet wallaby who I got to meet on a school choice visit to a uh, school up um, outside of Denver, I think it was. And uh, that was a very cool little creature. So I will say wallaby. Third question from Kate Hyde. What was the worst take Red Steez ever had on conservatarians? Hmm. I would just say, and this isn't really a bad take, but it got me in a little bit of hot water, calling Kristen Cinema the naughty senator from Arizona. 
um, just because um, one of the hats I wear is writing weekly for the Arizona Republic, the main paper in Arizona, and I have to be very serious and make arguments for and against our politicians. And uh, a lot of times I've been positive towards Kirsten Cinema. I don't see myself voting for her because I want a Republican in there. But um, yeah, she's an interesting person. He brought that onto Twitter, constantly calling her the naughty senator, so I couldn't retweet any of his comments because I knew I would be attacked as being misogynistic or something, even though it completely cracked me up every time he said it. It was kind of a running joke on the show when he was on here. Um, Just to go back, this is the 400th episode. This show actually started with a local radio host, Jim Sharp, great guy, and we started it and did a couple months of episodes, our very first episodes, and then his boss says, yeah, you can't be spouting off your political opinions. You can't do this anymore, even though in his contract said he could be doing a podcast because we had been uh, cooking it up for a while. So I had to take a brief hiatus. Then I reached out to Stephen Miller, a.k.a. Red Steez on Twitter. And uh, we were the conservatarians on there for quite a long while. And then he went and did his own thing. And every once in a while, once in a while he'll be on this show or I'll be on his but I renamed it because I think I moved on from the conservatarians and just calling it the conservatarian seemed kind of lame. So I renamed it the king of stuff. So how did I get on that tangent? Anyway, Joe Octer, A-U-C-H-T-E-R. I think that's Octer. He asks, where do you keep all your stuff? King of stuff. Also, no reason or anything. But when are you least likely to be there? Um, in reality, being the king of stuff, I have access to everybody else's stuff, so I don't need much of my own. I tend not to have a lot of stuff and tend to get rid of things whenever possible. I abs- uh, I subscribe to a more minimalist aesthetic, and it's we don't really have a big house. It's pretty smallish, and uh, so I don't have a lot of room to store stuff, and I, I just don't want a lot of stuff. I really don't. So I don't have any stuff, and I never leave my house, so you can't get to it anyway. William Kelly. This actually came from many people. Uh, why are you the way that you are? I think I got three or four of these questions were asked on um, various social networks. Um, the first time I remember someone asking me this was when I was in junior high and uh, we were trying to do a science project. I would be joking around, then very serious and joking around and then being very serious. And a girl asked me, why are you the way that you are? And it was not meant as any kind of a compliment. What can I say? The Lord has blessed me. Dave, also known as HeyUDVD on Twitter. Oh, we kind of get into the conservatarian thing. Do you still support libertarianism? As a former libertarian, I've come to realize the live and let live philosophy is untenable because it always results in one big prisoner's dilemma. There's no neutral zone. Either conservatives conquer it or the Marxists will. What are your thoughts? I still have a libertarian instinct. I've never called myself a libertarian because I've never supported the libertarian party, such as it is, and lowercase l libertarian. A lot of people in college were always trying to push me. Oh, you got you're not a conservative. You're a libertarian. You need to support that. No, no, um, because even then, as a younger man, I think there's a lot of good stuff in libertarianism in general. When a problem arises in society, my first thought isn't, how can the government fix it? Because the government will usually make it worse and more complicated and expensive and trample rights. So when a societal issue comes up, I usually don't want the government to do anything just to stay out of it and let the people figure it out on their own or social organizations or individuals or whatever. I've always had that instinct. But reducing, and correct me if I'm wrong, libertarians listening, I think the flaw 
was at the time, I thought at least, that it believes if you allow people to be free, they will make rational choices in their best interest. And I disagree with that. I believe human nature is flawed from the start and people make very, very bad decisions a lot. Um, heroin usage. There's a good example. You know, if you're a hardcore libertarian, you're like, oh, all drugs should be legal. People can make their own choice. If you don't care about people or your society, the people live, that live within your society, you would be this completely lazy fare. But an addict cannot make rational choices for themselves, and people make irrational decisions all the time for any reason. And I've written about this quite a bit. So, yeah, I've never called myself a full-on libertarian. Early on, I called myself a Western conservative. And you would think to someone like Barry Goldwater, in the Mountain West, there's a long tradition of just leave me the hell alone. So, yeah, they'll vote and they will petition government to do this or that. But in general, they would rather not have government involved. It's like, look, I can figure this out on my own. You still see that a lot in Alaska, which doesn't really have big Republican Party um, membership there. But they just they live in a very harsh environment and they need to protect themselves. Um, if their car breaks down halfway between Fairbanks and Anchorage, they have to figure it out. And they are prepared for it. And they just have this attitude. They don't rush to the government. Hey, fix this for me. It's just like instinctive almost. And people, especially in the older, olden times, uh, people who live in the Mountain West kind of had to do the same thing. They couldn't wait for somebody to help them. They needed to help themselves. So later on, probably five years ago, I realized another flaw with libertarianism is it is a, this is going to get philosophical. It is a purely materialist doctrine, which in that way, it is identical to Marxism, which I've discussed with people and they get mad at me for saying this, but it's all about money. It's all about economics. It's all about viewing human beings as homo economicus, the economics man, where nothing matters except their relation to material goods, distribution of said goods. And I don't believe that's what humans are. We are not um, computers. We are not walking calculators. Uh, we are very complex individuals, and if all you're focusing on is economic aspects, even though the appeal of libertarian libertarianism um, is far superior to Marxism, when you reduce either position, they both came up big time in the 20th century. It's because they broke all human society and all humanity into economic units, and I believe if that is your foundation, that's what you're starting with you're going to get a very bad interpretation at the very end of that. So, I'm still pretty conservatarian. I'm still a conservative with libertarian instincts, but I would not call myself a libertarian as it is. Someone, I don't have a name. Why are your abs so chiseled? When I put out for questions online, I said that's one of the questions that I recommend people asking. You might not believe this, but my abs actually are not chiseled. If I had to explain my body type, what would I use? Doughy. That's the adjective I would use, doughy. So, no. Sadly, maybe they're chiseled underneath the comforting protective layer of flab, but uh, no, they are not chiseled. Dylan asks, will Maricopa County have counted all the 2022 votes um, in time for the 2024 election? I will say no. I will say people will still be arguing whether all the votes are counted or not, and uh a week before the election, there will still be a court case pending because uh, that's how politics works these days. Shoshido asks, why haven't you adopted a second beagle, you monster? 
Um, the family dynamics here, I was always raised with a dog. My wife was always raised with a cat or many cats. Her parents actually for a while bred cats for cat shows and stuff, which I didn't know existed until I started dating her. So we've kind of settled on one cat, one dog. And again, I mentioned our house isn't that big. Um, say I was completely on my own somewhere. Um, I would probably have at least two dogs, maybe three. But it's just a little complicated when, you know, until recently we had two kids here. That's a lot going on um, for a whole bunch of pets. So we've considered actually very recently considered adopting another cat, a stray cat in our neighborhood. We've considered getting a second dog, especially Calvin the Wonder Beagle is very old now. And boy, he shows it. But uh, yeah, our equilibrium is kind of one cat, one dog. And I would not get two beagles because beagles are goofballs. They steal a whole bunch of food. Let's put it that way. Okay, Happy Camper 7890 on Twitter. Um, he asked, what's the better system for the U.S., our current bureaucracy or the system under the Byzantine Empire? Second question, what would be a more orthodox name for Calvin the Wonder Beagle? I would say ours is better, um, but uh, the bureaucracy is probably in scope larger than it was under the Byzantine Empire. I'm a big fan of Byzantine history, and I like reading about it. But with any kind of monarchy, we'll read the Bible, like the Book of Kings or something. It's like, so-and-so was a good king. This guy, bad king, bad king, bad king, bad... Oh, this one wasn't too bad. Bad king, bad king. This was a great king. This was really good. Let's stop and ask some questions about him. Then his son killed him. Bad king, bad king, bad king. So, yeah, when you're dealing with monarchy, um, yeah, it's a lot simpler and more to the point. But, uh, yeah, you're usually stuck with a really lousy leader for most of your life. And the, the rare exception actually does a good job. The what's a more orthodox name for Calvin, the Wonder Beagle. I, of course, named him after Calvin Coolidge, one of my favorite presidents. And there was actually um, a funny moment a few weeks after I got him out for a walk with him. And right behind us, like over the fence in our backyard, is a Catholic church. And uh, the priests usually live in homes kind of around us. I don't know if they still do. The home next door to us used to have a Monsignor living there, and uh, the church sold the property. So I assume they still live around. Anyway, while I'm walking the beagle, I walk him by the church, and a uh, priest says, oh, I love beagles. What's his name? And I said, Calvin. And he just hesitated for a second and gave me a weird look. I'm like, oh, not that Calvin, not John Calvin. No, uh, Calvin Coolidge. He's like, okay. So, uh, yeah, he does not have a Catholic name or he is he is a Protestant. Unfortunately, I've been un unable to convert Calvin to orthodoxy. Um, if he did decide to join the faith, the one true holy Catholic and apostolic church, Barsanufius, uh, that's kind of uh, there's actually a saint called Barsanufius who lived a long time ago. And it is a running joke in orthodox circles. That's the kind of name that people adopt who are converts like myself to orthodoxy. Um, pick some really esoteric sounding state saint so you can i'm down man i know the deep history of this church for those who don't know i don't know if the catholics work it this way but when you join the orthodox church you adopt the name of a saint <clears throat> now for most people my name's john there's a million saints named john so you kind of you choose a patron saint and uh that's the name you adopt um if somebody becomes a monk they're given a name of a saint a different name from their own almost always. If the person then becomes a priest, let's say, they often give them a different name for the priesthood. Um, if they become a bishop, sometimes they will give them a new name for being a bishop. So it's kind of a thing. 
But Joe Blow, I don't know, say your name was something like Hunter or something. You're raised, whatever, Protestant, and then you join the Orthodox Church. I doubt there's a Saint Hunter out there, so you might pick another existing saint name. Now, you don't have to use this name everywhere you go, but um, when you're up taking communion, um, accepting the Eucharist, um, the priest will call you by that saint's name. So it's a thing, which I was unaware of when I started this process. But again, my name's John, so it's just John. And my patron saint, by the way, is St. John Chrysostom. Check into him. Awesome. Alan Keith Carver, he of the Grand Beard, um, or formerly of the Grand Beard, he says, if a tree falls on a florist and there's no one around to hear him, does he make a sound? Yes. I will say yes. Uh, Alan Keith Carver, by the way, when I grew my beard out really long, I made it 10 months. Well, he made it an entire year. So his his beard was two months more epic than even mine was. K.L. Norvell asks, vodka or gin? I'm not a huge fan of either one. My go-to, if I just want a sip and some hooch that's sippable, I go with bourbon. Um, if it happens to be cold and rainy, which only occurs a few days a year here in Arizona, uh, January is actually the best month for a couple of those cold and rainy days. Scotch is on order. But uh, vodka or gin, I use them for mixing. I adore gins and tonics. I was going to say gin and tonics, but that doesn't sound right. Gins and tonics. Hey, if you hear clicking, that is Calvin, the Protestant wonder beagle right there wandering around. He's reformed, as you know. So you will hear his tail knocking into furniture and uh, clicking noises everywhere. I will let you enjoy that while I answer. Vodka or gin? Well, oh, Calvin's coming over. Come here, buddy. Come here, buddy. Oh, he's afraid of me. Um, anyway, uh, vodka gin, I adore gins and tonics. So, um, yeah, I like those a lot. Vodka, I love just a good, clean vodka martini. And Oh, Moscow Mules, that has vodka in it, too. I will say vodka, because I would never drink gin straight. I had kind of a bad experience with it in high school, which I was, of course, not exactly drinking age. And the first gin I illicitly drank was whatever plastic bottle, plastic bottled nastiness one of my buddies stole from his parents' liquor cabinet. And it was basically vodka with a bunch of cheap perfume in it is what it tasted like. Again, I'm sure it wasn't a high-end gin and uh, it was deeply unpleasant. So uh, maybe as a result, I don't just drink gin on the rocks or something like that. But yeah, I'm more a bourbon guy. I would lean slightly to vodka. Um, I don't drink much. And if I will have a drink at home, I have a drink at home. And so the good part about that is, well, I don't like being drunk. I don't like the feeling of losing control. Even when I was a kid and stupid, I just did not like that feeling. So I will have one cocktail and that's why I get the good stuff. Uh, for vodka, I prefer Kettle One. Tito's is good. Many other brands are good. Uh, Kettle One is my go-to. For gin, I kind of move around a lot. I would say Sapphire is probably the one that I usually have. Bombay Sapphire, by the way. Um, to the questions. Next question. Amy, also known as Wicked Current One on the Twitters, was going to ask if you did grow up on power lines. I, I mentioned that. Requesting questions, I mentioned. Ask me if I grew up under power lines. Uh, no, I did not. But she says, okay, did you drink fluoridated water? Yes, I did. Um, interestingly, I grew up in North Phoenix, and I now live in Mesa. Mesa was a hotbed, traditionally, of John Bircher's anti-fluoridated water because it was going to sap our vital fluids and turn us into dirty commies. So there was, I worked for the city of Mesa 
20 years ago. Did graphic design, wrote for them, that kind of stuff. There for like three years. Yeah, there would be someone at many, many meetings saying we need to get rid of fluoridated water. Um, it's a danger. And I think Mesa put off having it for a long time. Anyway, yes, I, I drink fluoridated water, but did not grow up under power lines. Mario Vocati says, uh, let's see, what do they do with the malcontents and misbehaviors on a submarine for months on end? Confinement seems a little redundant. I think there is a way they can uh, confine someone in maybe a small ward room. The officers, at least the higher level officers, they have a little ward room. So sometimes there's two of them sleeping in there, like the captain just has himself in the room, but they're really dinky. But that would be a confined space. You could keep someone if they really uh, broke the rules badly. Uh, the main thing they did with the misbehaviors and malcontents is just uh, kick them off the sub when we got back to port. Uh, it was a mercy to them that they did that once we got back to port instead of uh, tossing them in a torpedo tube and shooting them out to sea to swim for home. But yeah, that's when I was there. I don't really remember. It's a lot of oddballs on the sub, which attracted me, as you know. But um, yeah, I don't I don't remember that being a big deal. But basically, I'm sure they they have ways to keep them in confinement, maybe have a guard there and have them in a smaller controlled space. But I didn't see it on the sub. Mercifully, Happy Camper 7890 says or asks, what would it have taken for you to turn your naval enlistment into a full 20 year career? I was I actually joined the Navy when I was still a high school student. My best friend, I uh, talked him into it. So we both joined um, while we were in high school, like spring of our final semester. And we did this delayed entry program. So we're like, OK, we will actually go into the Navy, enter the Navy um, the first of the year. So January 3rd, I was freezing my butt off in Great Lakes, Illinois, which is north about 30 miles of Chicago. And the weather was slightly different from Phoenix. My buddy went to San Diego and I'm still bitter about it. But as a high school student, I joined. I'm like, I'm going to do my 20 years. I'm going to start off enlisted. Then I'm going to go to OCS, Officer Candidate School, become an officer and make a career out of this. Then I hit about day 10 on the submarine the first time we went and went, yeah, I'm getting out of the Navy. Um, this isn't going to work. I always tell people I'm extremely glad not only going in the Navy and volunteering for sub service. It was a great experience. But the people who do a career are a very different breed of folk. Um, it kind of has to be your life. Highest divorce rates of any profession are submariners, submariners, whichever you prefer. I think second down from the list are cops. So it is a very bad environment if you'd like to get married, have kids, um, kind of build a home base and stay there because you're at the mercy of other people transferring you all over and you don't exactly know where you're going to be, at least theoretically. I'm sure there are ways of communicating this. Um, if I get on board a sub on a Monday morning, I can't tell my wife when I will return. So maybe I'll be gone four days. Maybe I will be gone six months. So it is not good for family life. And uh, I learned very quickly. Yeah, I'm glad I'm doing it. I never regretted signing up, but it was like, no, I cannot do a career this way. Uh, let's see. Another Orthodox question. Tom, also known as Applied Gifted Ed, asks, are there any good Orthodox jokes? And he gives one as an example. What do you call the bass player at the Orthodox service? An Uber. He's lost. That's actually a good one. I, I was trying to. Yeah, when he first posed it posed this on the Twitters, um, I couldn't think of any. I tell jokes all the time kind of around it, but not like a setup, payoff, punchline kind of joke. One that I've heard is, how many Orthodox does it take to change a light bulb? 
And the response is, change? Uh, they, they don't like changing things. The liturgy is something my patron, St. John Chrysostom, wrote in, I don't know, the year 400 or something. So um, they do not like change. But yeah, I couldn't think of any like set up punchline jokes about the Orthodox, but I'm sure there's many. I'm a newbie to this whole thing. I'm sure people who have been in the church their whole lives have many. Uh, Steve asks, what does it all mean? I have no idea. I'll just say subscribe to this podcast. Pi, also known as the Pi, P-I, the Pi Man on the Twitters. Will we ever get a state of the stuff address? I've never considered that, but now I will. Now I will consider it. I need to uh, review my empire of stuff and uh, let you know what the status is. Actually, just will asks, what's the biggest musical disagreement you ever had with Red Steez, a.k.a. Stephen Miller? Our case and music aligned a lot. Uh, the reason I liked us both sharing our music at the end of each show and at the end of the year doing best albums of the year is we have different tastes, but they kind of overlap a bit. So it's not just two people who agree on everything, given the same top five albums of the year. Um, usually we would have one album at the end of the year. We'd both agree was on our best of list, but that's it. So a little bit of crossover, but not much. Um, I would say, um, and his, I would think would be my three times out of four. I'm recommending some shoegaze album three times out of four, or maybe two times out of four. He would recommend what I would call bleep bloop music. Just a lot of kind of a slightly more poppy on the indie bands that are slightly more to the pop side and had a lot of bleeps and bloops in their music. And I got tired of that. And I know he must've got tired of shoegaze because I was so predictable, but those are the songs I thought were the best that week. And those were the ones that he thought were the best. So I guess that'd be it. Not, no, no biggie. Dave, also known as Hey You DVD on uh, the Twitters. Three greatest artists and albums per decade from the 1950s through today. And he actually adds, this question deliberately forces you to make lists that aren't just a bunch of shoegaze. Um, to answer a Herculean task like this, I would need to research and study and pray about it for months on end because uh, I'm very slow to make decisions. To give my uh, rough perceptions, uh, best artists, I won't say albums because that's just too complicated. And I don't know like what albums were out in the 50s, really. In the 50s, best artist was Elvis. In the 60s, I hate to say it because everybody talks about them endlessly, I would say the Beatles. They had the most influence, the most sales. Even if they're not necessarily my favorite, I think uh, Pet Sounds is a singular album, which uh, came out the same year as Revolver by the Beatles. And it started this little studio technology arms race between the Beach Boys and the Beatles. Uh, it was a very friendly competition, by the way. But the Beatles had the most influence. 70s, I would say Bowie. He kind of owned the decade from 1969, I think, probably Space Oddity came out through the 70s, uh, going through all his stuff, changing all the time, setting the tastes of the uh, the era to follow him. 80s, I will have to say, I don't know about the most influential band, but a very they were very influential. I would say Joy Division slash New Order. They're the same band. Uh, singer Ian Curtis of Joy Division sadly killed himself. Gosh, probably, I don't know what year it was, maybe the end of 79 or something like that. But they started off with this edgy, nervy post-punk band, which kind of moved the uh, conversation from punk rock to post-punk. And then New Order said, well, we're going to keep making music, but we want a new name because kind of the guy most associated with us has died. 
So they became New Order and then went into like beats and dance and technology, where actually Joy Division was kind of trending anyway. If you listen to their last music, they were incorporating a lot of keys. But then New Order kind of set the agenda to a new style of music, especially with Blue Monday kind of combining something that rockers and indie artists and dance people could all get behind and love. 90s. I will I I would think the Pixies, at least for me, because they set the agenda on grunge and everything, and they actually started in the late 80s. Um I, I will uh throw in a left field um option and say Aphex Twin, very important to electronic music. Uh you could say in the 70s the most important artist was Kraftwerk because they are still influencing music today, but I will say Aphex Twin, the aughts, 2000 to 20, 2009. See, this is when I started having kids and I didn't follow anything as closely. I will say Sufjan Stevens because I was do a lot. And it also kind of um, ushered in this whole era of singer songwriters and kind of weird artsy experimentation. Uh, the 2010s, again, not following as close. I will say personally for me, Ice Age, kind of a new version of a punk band out of Denmark and Mitski, who's made several of Stephen and I's uh, best albums of the year list. Um, she, she's an artist. She'll be around for a while. I'll say those two. I, I think uh, to give it a credit, I think it should be some kind of a hip hop artist, but I don't listen to much contemporary hip hop. Um, and the ones I do, it's like nobody's heard of. But someone like Kanye, even though he's falling out of favor, I think he would be up there. Someone like Beyonce, and I don't like that kind of music at all. Uh, Kendrick Lamar. So I think it would have to be like, if a list was being made by a critic, they would have to consider someone in hip hop because like indie rock and stuff that I like, it's so out of the conversation now compared to hip hop or rap or whatever. Uh, Kevin Creighton, the great Kevin Creighton. I had breakfast with him last weekend. Uh, which is the better Pixies album, Doolittle or Trompe Le Monde? Doolittle. Easy. The question is usually that hipsters will ask themselves, what's better, Surfer Rosa, their first full length album, or Doolittle, their second full length? And I say Doolittle to that as well. Part of it is that's the first Pixies album I had, Doolittle. And it's a little bit more polished, but not overly so, I don't think. Surf Rose is great. Doolittle, I think, is slightly better. For Trump Lamond, um, that album got hit by a lot of people. Because by then, it was mostly Black Francis, the main singer. Uh, he was uh, writing everything and wouldn't let Kim Deal, who plays bass, write anything. And it went in almost kind of like a metal direction. But a lot of people panned it at the time. I loved it. I thought it was a great album. Um, I would put Trump Lamond, an extremely strong number three behind Surfer Rosa and behind Doolittle. Bossa Nova was their weakest, but it still has its moment. A bad Pixies album is a very, very good album. Wow, getting a lot of music questions in this uh, group here. Jay Anderson asks, when were you first discovering or when you were first discovering indie rock or shoegaze in college, what was your main source of information? MTV's 120 Minutes, UK Music Press, like NME and Melody Maker, Record Store Clerks, all of the above, all of the above on that. Um, I would watch. There is actually something called, gosh, Night Flight. You might remember it. It was on like TBS or something on very late at night, a music video show. And then they started and probably like, 89 or something they had this section or segment they would play for like an hour called college crush groove and i don't know what those terms mean in relation to anything but i actually heard the shoegaze band lush and ride from that show 
I don't know how long that show lasted. Not a whole lot longer than that. But I did find out about bands from that in 120 minutes. Um, I would read UK Music Press. I subscribed to zines. I subscribed to other magazines. Um, record store clerks. I was very close, especially, yeah, uh, Zia was a big used record place here. One of the most popular, but I would hang out all the time at a place that is still around called Stinkweeds. It used to be near the university, and they used to have um, shows there, kind of like you had to be in the know to go to the shows, like the store would close, and then five minutes later, some national band that was touring the country would just stop in and play. So I used to see those a lot. Um, so they were influential, and just talking to friends and the music. So yeah, you you just had to pick it up from all these places. It wasn't, this is pre-internet here. Jay Anderson also asked, what's the better song by Adorable? A great shoegaze band. Sunshine Smile or Homeboy? Um, Homeboy is very good. Sunshine Smile is my favorite song by Adorable. It's epic and awesome. I would say my second favorite by them is Sistine Chapel Ceiling. They would integrate like Catholicism, but also have this real bad boy jerky element to it. So they were an interesting band. Um, Jay Light, also known as Arizona Scotch. I've broken bread with him as well. He lives locally here. What is the single most catchy song ever recorded? And why is it Girl at Home by Taylor Swift? Um, I don't I don't know if I've ever heard a Taylor Swift song all the way through. I just it's just not my thing. Never has been. Single most catchy song. I don't know if I could pick one, but it would have to be something power pop. Uh, there She Goes by The Laws would be a top contender. Mbop by Hanson is the earworm. Of all earworms, I want you to want me by Cheap Trick from an earlier era. It had to be something power pop. Crapple Frat says, I will ask you what I usually ask. Am I being detained? No, you are not. I will never detain you. Um, just please subscribe to my podcast. Matt Slobach, among, among the Cotty. I don't know if it's Cotty or Quaddy. It's Q-U-A-D-I. This is a um, something that Marcus Aurelius, uh, when he wrote Meditations, he would say his locations and um, like, because it was basically a personal diary for him. And sometimes he would say among the Quadi, which was one of the um, uncivilized barbarian groups up in uh, Germania or something like that. Switzerland, I think. I can't remember. Um, he asked, should I vote to support the relocation of the Arizona Coyotes NHL team to Tempe, Arizona from Glendale? Or would such a relocation have largely sucktastic effects? Yes, you should support it. I support it. I don't want any tax dollars going to this, but I don't live in Tempe, so that probably won't be an issue. But um, Arizona Coyotes lost a lot of local support when they moved from a downtown arena, which wasn't great for hockey. The sight lines weren't great for hockey, but they moved from there to the very far western edge of the greater Phoenix area, a suburb called Glendale, and not even the close part of Glendale because a huge suburb, but the furthest edge of it. It made someone like me, who lives in the East Valley in Mesa, next door to Tempe, it, I, I just almost never went to a game. I went to one, maybe two, and I used to see a few games a year, at least. I never was a season ticket holder or anything, but it was fun just to go downtown Phoenix, watch some games. It was so far away. It's like, there's no way I can get out there. It's way too far. So, um, yeah, that was a terrible decision to move that there. It was right next door to where the Cardinals play. Once again, it takes you know, close to an hour to get there for me. And Phoenix goes a lot further east than where I live. Uh, they should move to Tempe because Tempe is far more central and people can get to and from there from downtown Phoenix very easily. Light rail is set up. I think you'd have a lot more local support if it was something where everybody in the valley could easily get. Chaws, also known as Charles121516, asks, what are 
Paul Revere and the Raiders. Why are Paul Revere and the Raiders not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? I don't know much about them. That's kind of before my time. I know that a lot of their hits were covers, so that's why I will say, um, and I can't even think of any right now, um, most of their hits or a lot of their hits, and this was very common in this era, they would just cover other people's songs. I know they covered Louie Louie. And yeah, so if you're not writing your own stuff, I think that is a ding against you. Strawman, also known as Bert Huggins. Why did why did Constantinople get the works? Well, look, that's nobody business but the Turks. Randy Wyvoda, he's a moderator. He uh moderator at Ricochet, one of our most um in-tune members. He asked, Whatever happened to Bethany Mandel? Is she taking time off to have another baby or is she gone for good? Bethany Mandel wrote for her site and was a editor of her site as well. Um, host podcast, still host podcast for us. Um, but a while back, quite a while back now, uh, she temporarily left because she was focused on, on writing kids books with the Daily Wire. And she is like this dynamo who's always doing a million things. So she wrote, promoted, organized all these books while she has at latest count 67 children. Um, she probably has two more on the way. Um, her and Seth are just working their hearts out. And I think it just got Ricochet got kind of pushed out of the order because she's writing for all sorts of newspapers active in her community. So I think it just got to be too much. She cut back on her time a lot and then she took a hiatus and then she did not return, but we still interact with her and things like that. Let's see. Find me in the cafe also listed as tug fans matter. Is it really true that climate change is a risk to our coffee supply? Um, no, no, it is not. Uh, the climate always changes and it always will change. And that affects agriculture. Um, you can see evidence of this in ancient Egypt, ancient Mesopotamia, ancient Rome. Um, yeah, agriculture patterns and weather patterns shift all the time, including climate. So they'll figure it out. They'll move locations where they grow the best coffee and uh, it'll be fine. Uh, Laura Gadbury, Ricochet member. She asks, how is empty nesting going? I think I'm going to be terrible at it. Well, both of our girls are now in college. One just started this past year. One is in her third year at college. We never had a truly empty nest, though, because our our eldest daughter lived in the dorms for like nine months, and then she moved back home because, one, it was expensive, but that was during the COVID lockdowns. So she was like a prisoner in a room. They couldn't do any activities there. They couldn't go out and see each other and hang out with each other. You weren't supposed to have other students in your room or go in their rooms. So I was like, what's the point of even being there? It's just ridiculous. She's just locked in a room. So she moved back home. So um, and now our our other one is going to school out of state. So she's not here, but she was back for a month over the holidays. So we haven't officially um, been empty nesters, at least not yet. It's going to be tough, though, when that does happen. And it's already weird only having one daughter here. So uh, I don't know. To be uh, to be determined, Jason Rudert, he asks, George Santos bad at not getting caught lying. But is there someone else in Congress who has built a house of cards and has just been lucky no one's nudged it? I bet there's a lot of people um, hiding dark secrets. Uh, Eric Swalwell springs to mind. Uh, He was useful because he's dumb and he says dumb things that uh, can be fit on bumper stickers. Uh, So he had liaisons apparently with a Chinese spy, but you just know he's He's got stuff, but the press doesn't call him on it. I'm, I'm sure a lot of these people have stuff they don't want you to know. Republicans, Democrats, doesn't matter. Um, yeah, I do not uh, expect sterling character from the vast majority of politicians. A Nova gentleman. 
says, are you friends with college professor Dave Lowry? Do you just ask him touring questions from 1987? Congrats on the 400th episodes to one of my favorite writers. Ah, thank you, gentlemen. Um, I'm not friends with Dave Lowry. He has been on the podcast. Uh, for those who don't know, he led a band called Camper Van Beethoven, a uh, great indie band in the 80s. Then he was behind Cracker, another indie band in the 90s. And he still tours. Uh, we follow each other on social media. He still tours. He's going here and there. But after he finished being a rock star for a couple decades, he decided to become uh, get a law degree and become a professor. And he focused on copyright law. And he is uh, fighting a lot of times a lot of these streaming services that are ripping off artists blind, especially, I don't know, if you're Oasis, you're going to get a paycheck somehow. But if you're a little band that had one hit or just a few hits, it's like you got to support these people. So he's fighting the good fight on that great guy. And that is it for the user submitted questions. One thing I thought of before I hit record is why don't I answer the classic question list to finish this up? This is, I don't know if you ever watched it, but Inside the Actor's Studio was something, I don't know where it was, on A&E probably, and it had this insufferable poltroon and uh, his uh, James Lipton, just a failed actor who was very presumptuous, very arrogant, and he would invite somebody on, and he would have Jack Nicholson on and ask him questions and suck up to him. But at the very end of it, he had this list of questions written by some some great French philosopher or something. And I, I do not remember his name, but he had this list of like 10 questions at the end of every show. He would make them, he would ask them all these questions and make you give very quick, short answers. So I was like, I'll go through that. What is your favorite word? Hmm. Oleaginous. It's the first one I thought of. I like old timey, overly long and complicated words. What is your least favorite word? Tincture. That just sounds gross, doesn't it? Tincture. Uh, what turns you on creatively, spiritually, emotionally? Uh, coffee. I, I need that before I can contemplate anything great. What turns you off? Arrogance. Um, if a writer is arrogant, I'm immediately less likely to believe in anything they say. What is your favorite curse word? Um, I avoid cursing, as you could probably gather from the show, even on Twitter. It's just, it's so easy to do. I'd rather find a more complicated way of insulting someone if I'm going to insult someone. Uh, because it's more amusing, and since nobody uses these words, it's more impactful. When you just say F off to somebody, it's like, it's forgettable. I've uh, a few times called, I think I used poltroon earlier, I've often called politicians on Twitter an unctuous poltroon. Yeah, again, it's just more memorable and fun to come up with something old-timey. Uh, what is the sound or noise that you love? Uh, laughter, especially from kids. Um, like a church service when kids are screwing around. It's my favorite thing ever. Uh, what sound or noise do you hate? Um, ringing phones and doorbells. Not a fan. I, it's just, it means that somebody's interrupting me. And even if it's like a friend or something, I'm just like, now I'm going to have to interact with humans that I, and I was not prepared for this. Uh, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Woodworking. I would love to do woodworking. I, all I had was like a shop class in junior high, and I loved it. Wasn't good at it, but I loved it. I think that'd be fun. Uh, what profession would you not like to do? Um, for this one, I need to go to a Saturday Night Live bit, which um, asks these questions. Uh, James Lipton was played by Will Ferrell, and what's her name? Kate Hudson was playing Drew Barrymore. 
And the fake James Lipton asks her this question, what profession would you not like to do? And she says, I don't want to burn monkeys, which is a great answer. Um, more realistically, um, I ruled out a lot of professions early on. Uh, medicine, don't care about it. Don't like it. I don't like all the gross bodily fluids. Don't want to deal with it. Law, I worked as an intern at a law firm. Well, a temp, I guess you could say. First job out of the Navy. And a lot of people said, oh, you'd be good at law. Maybe this will be your career. Two weeks there, going back to arrogance, these arrogant corporate lawyers, just painful to be around. There was like 50 lawyers this place. Two of them had prior careers and then later got a law degree. They were super cool, super smart. The people who were kind of lawyers from birth, tedious. Um, I And I just, it's just, I don't know. I think I would get mired in it. I think I would do well in it, but um, I would think of nothing else. And uh, it's a lot of long hours, so I don't think I would like that. Uh, or anything like fireman, policeman, EMT. There's just no way. Love guys. God bless them. I couldn't do it. Um, the last question, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? I would like to hear him say, okay, I guess you're in. That's all I want. Eek over that finish line. Um, and that is it. That is it for the show. I don't know how long this went. I'll have to edit it and find out. But thank you very much for submitting all the questions. Once again, uh, this was the Ask Me Anything Get to Know Me episode. Uh, appreciate you being on. Keep in mind, well, we'll be back next week. So rate, rate, rank, review this episode. Subscribe if you aren't already. Check out Ricochet. Become a member. And also, I'm going to be hosting a Ricochet meetup here in the greater Phoenix area. I think March 11 was the day that I agreed to. Um, I'll probably just get together for beers, hang out on a Saturday. But uh, yeah, become a Ricochet member. You can find out all the details there, which I'm sure will be further fleshed out and uh, worked around. And that is it for me and the show. Have a great guest next week, and I will talk to you then. Ricochet. Join the conversation.